Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you conversations with and about the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know the names, and you definitely know the songs. We bring you the stories. Keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, or our website by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. While Songcraft is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can help support us with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support. You're listening to Junior Walker and the All-Stars' top five R&B version of How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You a song that was also a hit for both Marvin Gaye and James Taylor that was co-written by Lamont Dozier, our guest on this 100th episode of Songcraft. Lamont Dozier is a Songwriters Hall of Famer, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, BMI icon, and one of Rolling Stone Magazine's 100 Greatest Songwriters of All Time. Later in the show, we'll chat with Lamont about his ridiculous list of hits, including Heat Wave, Sugar Pie Honey Bunch, Reach Out, I'll Be There, Bernadette, Give Me Just a Little More Time, Why Can't We Be Lovers, Two Hearts, and his 10 number one pop hits with the Supremes, including Where Did Our Love Go, Baby Love, Stop in the Name of Love, I Hear a Symphony, You Can't Hurry Love, You Keep Me Hanging On, and more. But first, in honor of our 100th episode, we answer Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 100 greatest songwriters of all time with our own list, Songcraft's other 100 greatest songwriters of all time. Plus, we'll chat about our Patreon page, tell you about our friends at Pearl Snap Studios, and tell you how to enter for a chance to win a signed copy of Lamont Dozier's most recent CD, Reimagination. Part one. (laughs) You know what that is? I'm guessing that's a drum roll. That's a drum roll. Yes. Because we are presenting our 100th episode of Songcraft. I literally cannot believe it. How awesome was that drum roll? That was a great drum roll. Like, I got chills. Man, I got chills just doing it. That was good. (laughs) Did you ever think when we started doing this that we would actually make it to 100 episodes? Or or did you even think that far or that we'd live that long? I didn't think we'd make it to one episode because (laughs) you and I uh, goof around about a lot of stuff. And we were having lunch one day and I remember you you said to me, we should we should make a podcast. Right. And I was like, I don't think I've ever heard a podcast. And you're like, yeah, me neither. Yeah, and it was about as serious as we should get chips for the table. That, <laughs> right. It's about as serious as that idea was. Right. Yeah, but, but we did it. Yeah, here we are like what, 3 years in or something with with 100 episodes. 4 years, four my years friend. In. 4 oh, years. God. Yeah. I mean, I thought an asteroid would have hit the earth by by now. There's just <laughs> no way I thought this would have happened. It's pretty crazy. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's nuts and and here we are making podcasts, making 100 episodes, hopefully many more to go. Yeah. Um, you know, we obviously have a lot of fun with this, so it's it's something we love doing. And um, actually, not long after we started this podcast, Rolling Stone magazine released uh, a list called the 100 Greatest Songwriters of All Time. Yeah. And I think Rolling Stone creates lists just to irritate people. And it works. <laughs> it is just something and for people, works. just something for people to, to complain about. So my complaint with the calling it the list of the 100 Greatest Songwriters of All Time. Yeah. There's no Stephen Foster. There's right. there's no Cole Porter. There's no Gershwins. Right. You know, so it's really their list is the 100 greatest songwriters, in their opinion, of the rock and roll era. Right. 
So that's one issue that I have with it. And of course, there are people on the list that, frankly, I probably wouldn't have put on there. There's others that I would absolutely include that yeah, were excluded. Rolling Stone likes to kind of substitute coolness for greatness every now and then. Yeah, I think that I would agree with that. Um, so in celebration of our 100th episode of Songcraft, we have come up with our answer to Rolling Stone's list called the 100 Other Greatest Songwriters of All Time. Yep. And we've fallen into the same trap. We're, we're, we're basically using their rules. We're doing rock and roll era, so we're not uh, correcting the mistakes of leaving out some of the classic uh, Ten Pan Alley songwriters. But we're, we're basically using their rules and presenting our list of here's 100 great songwriters ranked from 100 to number one that we think are absolutely deserving uh, songwriters who should should be celebrated. Yeah, and it's it's not really the the second 100, per se. It's almost like in an alternate universe, you know, the right. alternate reality. These are the ones that Rolling Stone didn't get to or didn't see or, or, or missed. Right, and, you know, what's interesting is one of the... We, we talked about this, Paul, that maybe the way to approach this was like, I pick 50, you pick 50, and then we just interchange them. We thought, no, we're not going to do it that way. We're actually going to rank these. You and I are going to come to yep. some sort of agreement and we don't always have the exact same taste in music no we, we had to remove our shirts and oil wrestle <laughs> to come to an agreement on some of these and you can find a video of that on our patreon page <laughs> now um so uh this was an interesting exercise because it gets into philosophical questions what makes a great songwriter is yeah. it just craft is it commercial success is it influence on other writers? Is it the number of people who've covered their songs? There's a lot to consider. So yeah. um, we kind of approach this as a mix of craft and commercial success um, and impact. We, yeah. we saw it as kind of a mixed bag. There's some people on this list that probably made it on um, due to the absolute undeniable craft of their writing ability. Yeah. There are others due to the undeniable power of the influence they've had on popular culture with, with just writing hit songs. Um, so we're going to go through our list right now very briefly. We're going to post this thing online on our website at songcraftshow.com. And we want to hear from you guys because that's the fun of these lists yep. is, is to tell people what idiots they are for leaving off the <laughs> obvious, you know, choices or ranking certain people above others. So, yeah. so let's just, let's just jump into this thing. You want to do like take 10 at a time and we'll just count backwards. Yeah, that seems like All the right. best way to do it. All right, cool. So at number 100, Peter Gabriel. Then Craig Wiseman, Nashville songwriting legend. Tom Bell, architect of the Philadelphia Sound. Laurie McKenna. Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails, Ronnie Van Zant from Leonard Skinner, John Legend, Mel Tillis, Bobby Gentry of Ode to Billy Joe fame, and Jeff Tweedy from Wilco. Coming in at number 90 was Mickey Stevenson, one of the great Motown writers, uh, Moby, Bill and Gloria Gaither, legendary gospel songwriters, Linda Perry, Jerry Reed, The Smeezingtons, who you may not know the name, but Bruno Mars, Philip Lawrence, Ari Levine, Billy Gibbons, Dusty Hill, and Frank Beard, otherwise known as ZZ Top. Ani DeFranco, country legend Don Schlitz, and The Cure. Coming in at number 80, we've got Graham Parsons, then Mary John Wilkin, John Mellencamp, Guns N' Roses, the team of Neil Sedaka and Howard Greenfield, Nico Case, Garth Brooks, Lyle Lovett, Richard Marks, and Texas songwriting legend Towns Van Zant. At number 70, we've got Eddie Van Halen, and only Eddie because Eddie spanned both sides of yeah. Van Halen from Roth and Hagar. Uh, Ryan Adams, not Brian, but Ryan Adams. Will Jennings, writer of songs like My Heart Will Go On. Uh, Rodney Crowell, Rudy Clark, John D. Loudermilk, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry of Aerosmith, Bobby Braddock, Patty Griffin, and Sting. Coming in at number 60, we've got Cheryl Crow, Lindsey Buckingham, the great Nina Simone, J.J. Kale, Coldplay, Waylon Jennings, 
Bobby Womack, Angus Young, and Malcolm Young of ACDC, Bill Anderson, and Jeff Lynn of ELO. Now we're entering the top 50. At number 50, Steve Cropper, songcraft guest and uh, co-writer with Otis Redding, Booker T, etc. Kenny Loggins, Tupac Shakur, Pearl Jam, Norman Gimbel, Glenn Ballard, who you may know from songs like Man in the Mirror and everything Alanis Morissette did that was huge, <laughs> um, Eric Clapton, Johnny Johnson, Desmond Child, and Anne and Nancy Wilson of Heart. And at number 40, Michael McDonald, Buck Owens, one of my personal favorites, Ryan Tedder, J.D. Souther, Carol Bayer Sager, Dave Grohl of Nirvana and Foo Fighters, Maurice White of Earth, Wind & Fire, Roy Orbison, Freddie Mercury of Queen, and the inventor of bluegrass, Bill Monroe. Starting to get into rare air here at number 30, Nile Rodgers, Jackie DeShannon, Carl Perkins, Mac Davis, Ray Charles, how was he not on the first 100? Crazy. Gloria Estefan, Rod Temperton, who you may know from Michael Jackson hits like Thriller and Rock With You, Jimi Hendrix, again, <laughs> how was he not in the first 100? Roger Miller and Mutt Lang. All right, number 20, gospel legend Andre Crouch, Emmylou Harris, The Ramones, George Michael, Pharrell Williams, Steve Earle, David Foster, Phil Collins, Guy Clark, and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Now we're gonna slow things down right. a bit right here as we move into the uh, for to the, the lovebirds. To the <laughs> as we move into the top ten, and uh, instead of one of us saying it, we'll kind of go uh, go back and forth here. So, Paul, why don't you do the number ten? Because this is a guy that that you're particularly uh, a big admirer of, Lionel Richie. Um, I think if if you look at either his Commodores hits like Sail On three times a lady, easy like Sunday morning. If you look at those alone, Lionel would be very, very deserving. But then you look at the solo career, um, All Night Long, uh, Running Through the Night, uh, Hello, that's just off one album. Dancing on the Ceiling. I mean, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Lionel Richie is one of the great American songwriters, no doubt. Yeah, I think sometimes people who are big pop stars, uh, they don't get the respect they deserve as songwriters. Right. That guy's a beast. Lady. Yeah, Kenny, old Kenny, old yeah. Kenny Rogers yeah. definitely laid that one down. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so coming in at number nine, another guy that I'm, I'm kind of surprised uh, wasn't on Rolling Stone's list. Now, Willie Dixon is kind of known as the quintessential blues songwriter, but Muddy Waters is right up there. I mean, yeah. Muddy Waters is a guy that uh, that helped really define uh, Chicago blues, electric yeah. blues, and um, somehow didn't make Rolling Stones list. Although I think he absolutely deserved to. So and, and there's no there's no rock if there's not blues. Right. And Muddy's one of the pillars of blues. So. Rolling and tumbling, Rolling Stone, Manish Boy, a lot of great hits that he had as an artist, but also that uh, he wrote. So then we come to Roger Waters and David Gilmour of the band Pink Floyd, and it, just looking at one if you just looked at dark side of the moon right. i honestly think that's enough that song was on the billboard charts for i, I want to say like 5 years like it's some ridiculous <laughs> i think it still is <laughs> yeah but i mean it's like in the top you know the the, the top 200 uh, yeah it may be back in the top 200 right. at this point um and then another amazing concept album the wall yep um just plus hit after hit after hit longevity. I, you you have to put Pink Floyd in there. I think just because of the ubiquitous nature of that album. Pretty much all of you have it. 
<laughs> that is very true. Um, well, next on the list, coming in at number seven, is Phil Spector. Phil Spector obviously is known as a producer. Well, he's he's kind of known for other stuff, unfortunately, <laughs> nowadays. But um, right. he w- he was originally best known yeah. as a producer, but also a guy who was uh, was a songwriter. Songs like uh, Spanish Harlem and Chapel of Love and uh, those big. Uh, wall of sound hits that yep. he produced. He also wrote a lot of them. And um, as an American songwriter, he is absolutely uh, influential. Yep. I don't know what else to say about Phil Spector. I, I think you've you've nailed it. We're still hoping for that jailhouse interview. I hope it'll happen one day, maybe for our 200th episode. That'd be amazing. Um, then we come to Led Zeppelin. The songs that they wrote, um, songs like Stairway to Heaven or Over the Hills and Far Away or it, the, the ones that were based in Tolkien and weren't based in the blues, even <laughs> they weren't ripped off. Yeah, totally. You know, you're pretty good when you rip off that many songs and you still make it into the top 100 <laughs> from the, all the songs you wrote. You didn't rip off. Totally. <laughs> um, but I, I just I, rock and roll hit Led Zeppelin and then changed forever. Yeah. I, I think what we what we saw in hair metal and what we saw in the progression of rock, I think they are they they've got to be on the on the Mount Rushmore of rock. Um, so. Crazy that they wouldn't have made it on that first 100. Yep. So moving now into the top five. Coming in at number five, this is probably the most um, the most recent yeah. person on the list, which is Diane Warren, who essentially invented the big power ballad as we know it today. Yeah. Songs like Unbreak My Heart, Because You Love Me, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. I mean, the, the number, sheer number of hits that this woman has written. I think she must have won every award there is to win yep. and has probably topped every chart there is to top just unbelievable powerhouse of songwriting. And it's, it's total master of the craft. I mean, those songs like them or not, if that's your bag or not, those songs are incredibly well put together and they're yep. incredibly effective. She knows what she's doing. Here's one that I think may surprise some people, but shouldn't Bob Seger. Yep. As far as artists go, and as far as as American rock singer songwriters, first of all, you got a guy who's writing all this stuff by himself. Yep. Bob Seger writing writing solo songs that just dominated the radio. Um, by the time I grew up, I feel like I knew the whole catalog from just what I'd heard on Saturdays from you know, <laughs> right. the, the Arrow or whatever it was we were listening to in Nashville. Those right. classic rock songs, um, Main Street, Night Moves, Rock and Roll Never Forgets, Like a Rock, Against the Wind. Yep. I mean, it it just doesn't stop. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I I I think he's the poet of blue collar rock. I like that. Yeah, I think Night Moves. I think is one of the best written rock songs ever. Night Moves is incredible. I I just you could sit and start playing that acoustic, you know, changing, changing, mm-hmm. and already I'm in a good mood. And I don't even remember that time period. I wasn't alive then. Right. But I'm like, oh man, the '60s. Yeah. If you make someone nostalgic for a time they didn't live in, you're <laughs> you're doing a good job. Yeah, and we're your target audience for that, by the way. <laughs> Okay, I know I just did Bob Seger, and we've been going back and forth, but I'd like to take the lead on this next one if I can. All right. Just because Otis Redding has always meant a lot to me and still does, I feel like I'm always still putting putting this music on. And lately, I feel like I've been telling people a lot. With the passing of Aretha Franklin, people don't know that Otis Redding wrote Respect. Right. Along with all the other amazing songs that he wrote that he made hits on his own, like Mr. Pitiful. Yeah. Or a little ditty called Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you add respect on top of that. And then I, I, I think Otis does, he gets kind of overlooked as a songwriter because he's such a force as a singer. Right. And and his vocals were, were so kind of earth-shattering that we forget that he was in there writing these songs. Yeah. Um, and he sits particularly high on my list and in my mind because of the potential that was lost. Otis died at 26. 
That's crazy. 26 and still wrote these songs that have left such a legacy. And you think about what could have been with this. Yeah. Well, moving up to the number two spot, um, Nashville songwriting legend Harlan Howard. Harlan Howard is the guy who said, supposedly said the the famous quote, uh, country music is three chords in the truth. And that's attributed to him. huh? Yeah. And he um, really helped define commercial country music songwriting um, going all the way back. He was out here on the West Coast in the 1950s writing with a guy named Wynn Stewart, who was a kind of a precursor to Buck Owens, made his way to Nashville, set up shop there and wrote a few songs like I Fall to Pieces, which was a huge hit for Mm -hmm. for Patsy Cline, Busted, which is best known for the Ray Charles Charles version, version. Um, Heartaches by the Number, I've Got a Tiger by the Tail. I mean, this guy wrote... Uh, a huge number of songs that are now standards in country music. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I couldn't believe that he wasn't on the, uh, on the Rolling Stone list. Well, I can't believe that any of these top 10 yeah. people we said, they had a lot of country yeah. writers. It's yeah. not like they were, you know, omitting right. country writers. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, so Harlan Howard, uh, you know, a hero to basically anyone who's ever set foot yeah. in Nashville, which brings us Mr. Duncan to number one. Hey, not cool. You just did number two. You don't get two in a row. I'm hijacking this right now. Wait a minute. And uh, I don't know how you're going to feel about this. But we have a little thing here at Songcraft called Patreon. <laughs> and if you're not familiar with what Patreon is, Patreon is an opportunity for people to sponsor our show for as little as two bucks a month. <laughs> help us keep the lights on. Yep. Help us keep Songcraft going. It's the reason we've gotten to 100 episodes, because we've got great supporters out there. Help who us believe buy the in lunches over which we have these conversations. Exactly. <laughs> um, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to reveal our number one in two weeks publicly on our website. But we're going to go ahead and reveal the number one today on our Patreon page. So if you are a uh, Patreon supporter of Songcraft, you can go to our Patreon page today as you listen to this episode, and you will see the entire list 100 all the way to number one, the surprise number one, which I will tell you is actually two people. It's not a tie. It's two people who worked together. It's not Lennon and McCartney. It's not Jagger and Richards. Those guys are obviously on the Rolling Stone list. It's Millie Vanilli. Who the heck could it be? It's (laughs) Millie Vanilli. (laughs) So um, at the risk of being cheesy, we're going to hold it back for two weeks because we want to give a little extra love to the Patreon folks. And so if you've been thinking maybe about signing up, if you've been thinking about supporting Songcraft through Patreon, this would be a good time to do it because you can relieve that uh, suspense. Or you'll be like, screw those guys. That's a really cheap ploy. I'm never yeah. I'm never signing up for Patreon. So, you know, whichever. Find out in two weeks. Yeah, you'll find out in two weeks. You can still get it for free. It's cool. We just want to give a little something extra. We want to show a little love to the people who have showed us so much love with their Patreon. For support. anyone who's hated us so far for the way we've been ranking these writers, they really hate us. Oh right now. Yeah. yeah, they hate us so hard right now. But um, but regardless of whether or not you care about who we've chosen as number one, if you do listen to this show, if you do appreciate these conversations with great songwriters, with legendary people like Lamont Dozier, there aren't a lot of forums where you get to hear these writers go in depth in these yeah. career-spanning interviews and. If you believe in our mission, if you believe in 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 this show, then by all means, please go to Patreon. That's p a t r e o n dot com slash Songcraft Show, and you can find out how you can join the Songcraft team. And if you don't want to, you're still welcome to listen to our show for free. Uh, all that uh, all that you like, but hopefully we have a few perks there that uh, that you'll find attractive. Part two. 
Well, some things that make this episode kind of special. Number one, it's a it's a supersized episode. The 100th episode, if we haven't mentioned that yet. Yes, the, this 100th <laughs> episode is it, it's our centennial episode. It is. Uh, we, we're giving you a lot today, a lot yep. of material. Um, and we're also partnering again with someone who's been a part of the Songcraft story, you know, uh, for a long time. And that's Pearl Snap Studios. Yeah. Pearl Snap Studios have been real friends of the show and, and supporters of what we're doing. Um, and so, you know, we want to take a minute to kind of give them a shout out and let you guys know what they do at Pearl Snap Studios is they take your song ideas yep. and they turn them into first class quality demos that are fully pitchable in today's music market. Yep. For a low price that I'm not even going to get into because I want you to go to the site and find out yourself. Our friends at Pearl Snap will give you quality demos that are competitive with what you're going to hear on radio. I mean, we're talking pop, rock, country, whatever you need. If, if you've got songs that you feel like, man, I just need to get this thing recorded so I can get it heard, Pearl Snap is the place to go. Yeah, it's easy enough to, well, I guess it's not that easy, but you know, you can come up with a song, you can write a song, right. you can sit down with your guitar, your piano, you can like, but to get it into a form that uh, you can actually play for other people, if you're really serious about pitching your music, sometimes you need a little extra help yeah. and uh, you know, but you don't want to go invest like thousands of thousands of dollars in, in a studio recording that, yeah. you know, you don't know if anything is going to come of it. This is a way to get that professional quality yeah. without, you know, breaking the bank. So Justin and the the folks at yep. uh, at Pearl Snap are are good people, and I know a few of our Songcraft uh, listeners have That's used true. them before and uh, and been very happy. So yeah. we can't say enough good things about. Yeah, these and guys. Justin is someone that I write with a lot, and every time we do it, he records the demo for the song we write together, and we've gotten cuts from it. So yeah. I'm not just making this up. Yeah, that's good because I feel like you make up a lot of things. I do, but this one I can tell. This one is true. I'm looking you in the eye right now. I'm like, Paul Duncan is being serious right now. <laughs> so. Uh, you know, go to pearlsnapstudios.com and see what they have to offer you. I think you're going to like it. Part three. So for the 100th episode. Is that today? <laughs> yeah, believe it or not. Wow. I wasn't prepared. No. For the 100th episode, Paul and I thought, who do we get? Who do we get as a guest to, to talk about their songwriting career that is going to be worthy of yep. the 100? This is a milestone. Yeah. So we said, is there anybody out there who has written a hundred or more top 10 billboard hits? Impossible. Is there even, is there even a person on the face of the earth who has ever achieved such a feat? No. (laughs) Incorrect, sir. Really? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) As it turns out, Lamont Dozier has written 110 top 10 singles on the various billboard charts. I knew this. I was messing with you. I knew you did. Yeah. You're a good actor though. Yeah. Uh, which is insane. It's insane. Freaking Lamont Dozier is a songwriting legend. Yeah. I mean, this guy's songs are the type of thing that I don't. I don't think you, you would be hard pressed to find anyone in America that doesn't who didn't know. know at least one <laughs> Lamont Dozier song. I think it's impossible. Yeah. Um, this interview was actually it was equal parts awesome and frustrating. Because I'd sit there looking at these songs, and I'm like, we don't have time to talk about that one. Right, yeah. We're not going to even get to we, that song. Like, We have to skip a number one hit. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's ever happened. No. We've just skipped a number one hit. It's completely insane. And I think the thing that impresses me about Lamont the most is that this guy has still got the fire yep. in 2018 that he had in 1961. And he put out a CD just this year called Reimagination. And this thing, you know, look, I'm going to be honest. 
sometimes some of these guys that have got a long career behind them, they put out a new record and I go, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Am I interested in this? Right. I heard this CD. This is awesome. Yeah. I'm not just saying that because this guy is our guest on the show. Like I legit listened to this thing and was like, wow. And here's what fascinated me about this the most Lamont, as he talks about in our interview, a lot of times these classic Motown songs they wrote that were like up tempo, feel good songs. If you listen to them, they're actually kind of sad. Oh, for sure. And Lamont said they actually wrote a lot of these songs as ballads and then just sped them up. So what he's done on this CD is he's taken a lot of these great songs, like How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You, Baby I Need Your Lovin', Bernadette. He's taken a lot of these classic Motown hits and presented them in a different light. He's done something. He, he's A lot of them are the slowed down yeah. kind of ballad versions. And we're talking like acoustic piano, upright bass, super tasteful. His voice sounds amazing. Yeah. He's got guests like Graham Nash on this thing. He's got people like uh, Gregory Porter, Leanne Womack. It's it's really, 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 really good. Yep. Um, and we actually have a copy of this CD, Reimagination. It is autographed by Mr. Dozier himself. It says, best wishes, Lamont Dozier, right inside the uh, the inside of the CD insert. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel like with the kind of success that Lamont has had, that those best wishes will actually work out for you. <laughs> he's, I, he's clearly tapped into something. Yeah, so. he's got the Midas touch. So yeah. if you receive Lamont's best wishes... You might just start getting checks in the mail. <laughs> your, your back might stop hurting. Like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I, Lamont's it, got the touch. It's, it's, it's going to be good. So we're going to give this CD away to a Patreon subscriber. We already talked about Patreon. So if you're not yet a Patreon subscriber, you still have a chance to sign up. Uh, and any Patreon subscriber who sends us an email that just says Lamont Dozier, you can say whatever you want about the, the episode or whatever, but put Lamont Dozier in the subject line. Send that to songcraft at songcraftshow.com. And in uh, four weeks, two episodes from now, we will announce the winner of this Lamont Dozier CD. So that gives you plenty of time to sign up for Patreon if you want to enter this contest. And uh, yeah. And I, I will also say, I think there's a, a few of our listeners who are Grammy voters out there. Mm. And um, don't forget about Lamont Dozier. The Grammy uh, first right. round first round ballots are coming up, and I got to tell you, uh, I'm going to be uh, looking at, for Lamont Dozier's name on that thing because I think this is a Grammy worthy album, and I'd love to see this guy add yet another accolade to uh, to his long list of achievements right now in 2018. Well said. But enough of my yakking. <laughs> Let's talk to Lamont Dozier. Part four. Lamont Dozier, along with brothers Eddie and Brian Holland, wrote and produced more than 20 consecutive singles recorded by the Supremes, including 10 number one pop hits. Where Did Our Love Go? Baby Love? Come See About Me? Stop in the Name of Love? Back in My Arms Again? I Hear a Symphony? You Can't Hurry Love? You Keep Me Hanging On? Love Is Here and Now You're Gone? And The Happening. Other top five singles they wrote for the Supremes include My World Is Empty Without You and Reflections. In addition to their hits with the Supremes, Holland Dozier and Holland helped further define the Motown sound by writing major pop and R&B hits such as Heat Wave, Nowhere to Run, and Jimmy Mac for Martha and the Vandellas, Mickey's Monkey for The Miracles, Can I Get a Witness and You're a Wonderful One for Marvin Gaye, and I'm a Roadrunner for Junior Walker and the All-Stars. The trio found particular success with the Four Tops, who scored hits with their songs Baby I Need Your Lovin', I Can't Help Myself, Sugar Pie Honey Bunch, It's the Same Old Song, Reach Out, I'll Be There, Standing in the Shadows of Love, and Bernadette. 
Additional hits include Crumbs Off the Table for Glass House, Give Me Just a Little More Time for Chairman of the Board, Band of Gold for Frida Payne, and Dozier's own recording of Why Can't We Be Lovers. Hit cover versions of his songs by rock artists include Don't Do It by The Band, Take Me In Your Arms, Rock Me A Little While by The Doobie Brothers, How Sweet It Is To Be Loved By You by James Taylor, and This Old Heart of Mine by Rod Stewart. With hits spanning multiple decades, Dozer also co-wrote Two Hearts with Phil Collins, earning a number one pop hit, a Grammy Award, a Golden Globe, and an Oscar nomination. Dozer is in the Songwriters Hall of Fame and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He is the recipient of the prestigious Johnny Mercer Award for Songwriting, as well as the BMI Icon Award. Lamont Dozier was additionally named among Rolling Stone Magazine's 100 Greatest Songwriters of All Time. Lamont, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you, Scott. Well, after recording with uh, the Romeos and the Voice Masters, um, Motown's forerunner label, Anna Records, released your first solo single, Let's Talk It Over, in late 1960, and that was came out under the name Lamont Anthony. But uh, the B-side of the first pressing was a song called Popeye, where you're credited a- as a writer, and, and then there was a second pressing with the, the song Benny the Skinny Man. Again, you're, you're credited as a writer on that. Popeye was a big hit for me for uh, local, locally. It was a right. big hit, and it took off really, really strong. And I thought my career was in the bag. You know, mm. I thought I was on my way. You know, right. and I could put the mop down. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, but it didn't. It wasn't meant to be. Because the King brothers that owned Popeye. Uh, sent a letter and I uh, made some uh, inquiries about it and told us to cease and desist. Because oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we didn't get permission, they own it and blah, blah, blah. And they didn't like the, uh, the way I was <laughs> representing, <Right. laughs> representing their their product. Right, you know? right. And, uh, and I said, oh, man. And I was telling Billy Davis, who was Anna, uh, who was Gwen Gordy's partner, I said, man, well, why don't you just give them the, tell me you'll give them the royalties on it? Because the record was huge uh, yeah. locally you know yeah. it just took off and on that record by the way uh uh harvey if you go i play piano on it and um, i wrote the song but right. uh, harvey if you go play piano on it marvin gay was on drums wow. robert white was on guitar Man. and james jameson was on bass oh you know? <laughs> so that was that's before everything just went haywire and through the roof you know of right. course right right, right. <laughs> wow but uh, yeah, and it, it it was a funky little song, and it, mm. we we uh, had a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. But uh, we had to stop, and then we turned it into Benny the Skinny Man. But it just didn't have the same effect, mm. you know. Right, right. And so naturally, I had to dry my eyes, pick myself up, and move mm. on, you know. Right, right. Yeah. But uh, I uh, I started out to be a, a, a singer. But then the the writing and producing came later because of uh, uh, a lot of uh, the artists that were around 
uh, especially when I got to Motown, I wanted me to write and mm. write songs and produce them. We, you know, we, we begin to see your name appearing as a songwriter on the Billboard charts in 1962 with a couple of top 10 R&B hits for the Marvelettes. Someday, right. Someday was your first charter, and that uh, also happened to be the flip side of their big hit, Beachwood 45789. Um, and the second one was Strange, I Know, a song that also marked your first time on the pop chart. Now, these are songs you wrote with Brian Holland and Fred Gorman prior to the formation of the legendary Holland-Dozier-Holland trio. Talk about those very early days of Motown success in terms of, you know, how you got connected with Barry Gordy in the first place and kind of what your day-to-day life was as an up-and-coming songwriter trying to trying to score some hits. Right. Well, you know, uh, I was with Barry's sister first, with the Anorekas, you know, with the, uh, the group, the Voice Masters. Right. And uh, I got there... Uh, uh, two of the guys had gotten drafted, and uh, the company needed uh, two guys or a couple of singers to take the place. Yeah. And uh, I heard it on the radio, so I, I went over to uh, for the audition, and uh, uh, they liked what I did. And uh, I found myself uh, doing that audition for the uh, Anna Records and uh, the Voice Masters. Uh, Barry uh, and uh, Gwen Gordy wrote a lot of the songs for the uh, for Jackie Wilson. Mm, right. And so uh, over there, I, I, I wound up being uh, the, uh, what they call it, a better name for a janitor, the custodian. <laughs> <laughs> Mopping floors and sweeping and packing records, you know, that type of thing. Uh-huh. And um, Barry used to come in from time to time. This is before Motown had gotten off the, uh, you know, up and started. There. Sure. And um, he came in one day, I remember him, he was playing the song uh, Money by Barry Strong, you know. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I need And uh, he, was, he kept playing it over and over and as I was mopping the floor. And he was saying, man, what do you think about this song, man? What do you think about it? And he kept, like he didn't believe me at first. I said, man, it sounded like a hit to me. Said, yeah. <laughs> then he started over from the top. And, what do you think about the song again? You know, he wanted to hear me. Right. <laughs> As if he was trying to get some confirmation yeah. for me. You know right. what I mean? <laughs> so I, he kept playing it and asking me and asking. I said, man, I told you, this is a smash. You know? <laughs> and uh, shortly thereafter, uh, the company Anna Records, uh, we had a few hits, uh, you know, and shortly thereafter, uh, Anna Records folded, and so uh, Barry was taken off. He had uh, Mary Wells, right? And then the uh, uh, the Miracles had a uh, shop around, and uh, uh, Please, Mister Postman by uh, the Marvelettes. Yeah. Right. They were big hits, and then <clears throat> Barry knew me from the mop days, you know, mopping the floors. <laughs> stuff. Right, right. And uh, he thought about me wanting uh, being. And uh, a singer as well as a songwriter, and he called me up. He said, "Man, uh, I got this, uh, these, all these artists and everything, and I really would like you to come over since you're not with uh, with, with Gwen anymore, and the company doesn't exist anymore." So yeah. I said, "Fine." Went over, talked, and we signed papers, and, and I became the uh, one of the artists and uh, songwriters and producers uh, for myself as well as the, a lot of the artists there. Uh-huh. Now, is it true that that the staff songwriters at Motown actually punched a, a time clock when they came to work? Absolutely. Nine uh-huh. o'clock. 
Wow. Every, wow. every morning, 9 o'clock, you punch the clock, and you punched out at 6 o'clock, I think. Wow. And, uh, oh, and uh, then we had lunch. We had lunch, and usually we had a cook on staff that would cook a big pot of stew or something simple, yeah. you know, uh, that we could have lunch with <laughs> a big hunk of cornbread and some soup or some stew or something, you wow. know, for lunch. <laughs> that's amazing. And, <laughs> and that's how it went every day for, for quite a while. In 1963, the Marvelettes fell just shy of the Pop Top 40 with Locking Up My Heart, which is the the first charting single credited to the now legendary team of Brian Holland, Lamont Dozier, and, and Eddie Holland. And soon after that, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas had a, a big hit with Holland Dozier Holland's uh, Come and Get These Memories. Here's your friendship ring. about how you guys first became a, a songwriting and production team and kind of what role each of you played in that partnership early on that, that really made it click. Right. Well, you know, Brian was there and he was like Barry's really uh, right-hand man, so to speak, as far as creativity was concerned. So uh, Brian and I, uh, we, uh, we sort of like blended in together. I was writing a song called Forever uh, right. that uh, eventually... Uh, put on the marvelous and then Marvin Gaye. But uh, I needed a bridge on the song, and uh, we were in the studio, and I was playing the song. He said, man, oh, man, I like that. I said, yeah. I said, well, I've gone as far as I could go with it, you know. And uh, he put a bridge on this song forever, and uh, that was the beginning of Holland Dozier teaming up as a a songwriter. he and I, by the way, we had a language. We spoke a, a unhidden language creatively yeah. that he, we could feel each other's movements and uh, what to feel. We, we, we were on the same page, yeah. I put it that way. Yeah. And then uh, eventually Eddie wanted to see if he could play, uh, put his hand in as a, as a uh, lyricist and everything. Because I was, I was writing lyrics and doing some of the music, mm, you know, yeah. uh, writing music. And, and, and Brian was writing music and being a recording engineer right. as well as being a producer, you know. Yeah. So that's how the workload was split up between the three of us, you mm. know. And I understand that Come and Get These Memories was originally written with a particular artist in mind, and I was yep. kind of surprised when I heard who it was. Loretta Lynn. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> so interesting. interesting. Yeah. It just sounds like a country song to me, and yeah. I wanted to get it to her. I had no way to get it, get it to her. I didn't know anybody uh, that knew her, or the, I, I didn't know the process of how to yeah. get to an artist. Yeah. Especially a little black kid with the song. Though. <laughs> 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 so Loretta Lynn right. <laughs> was kind of weird, you was, know, I guess. Was, <laughs> but, was uh, country music an influence on you? Oh, yeah. I love Because country music... Tell it like it is. I mean, the stories and, and the backstories of how these songs uh, were written. Yeah, they had great stories and great feelings, and and it was so true. The truth in every line and mm. every melody. They said, "I just love country music, and I always have." You know, yeah. because it's a, a great art form. Right. 
Well, you guys found a huge success in 1963 when Martha and the Vandellas' recording of Heat Wave became your first number one on the R&B chart in Billboard, and uh, also your first top ten pop single. Nominated for a Best R&B Grammy, making Martha and the Vandellas the first Motown group to earn a Grammy nomination, and and that record to this day is is regarded by by many critics as one of the earliest examples of what's now come to be known as the the Motown sound. So, as the right. guy who kind of created it, what yeah. what is the Motown sound? I don't know. It's a it's a it's, it's a number of things. Uh, uh, I guess it's a little bit of gospel, a little bit of uh, uh, even a little bit of classical thrown hmm. in. He hit my head a few chords in there. Right. But uh, yeah, I started that out as a feeling, being from the church, and Brian and I, uh, and uh, the three of us from the church, we uh, we brought up on that feeling, you know, sure. and we also were brought up on classical music, hmm. you know. Huh. Brian and I. And I had that, that that same feeling of that love for classical music. Yeah. You know, when you think about some of the greats, you know. I mean, they, those boys knew how to write a song. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? They wrote and played every chord and melody that could possibly be played in right. those days. You know, man, they were like, um, some of that stuff was just beautiful. And right. Just so poignant, you know. There, but uh, There's a lot to be said, I think, for... You know, the open-mindedness here you're talking about, you got gospel music from the church, you got, you know, classical music that you're listening to, you're listening to to country music. You know, these are all different types of music that bring a, a different perspective, but when somebody's open-minded and, and is willing to learn from the best of all of it, it comes into, you know, something that, that's really unique and special. You're absolutely right, and, and in order to be... Uh, in order to have a song that's special and and, and a song that w- w- will be loved, it, it has to have something for everybody. Yeah. Uh, you might like uh, a song because of all of these attributes. You might you might hear a little bit of country, a little bit of classical, yeah. a little bit of R and B, and and pop. You know, it's all mixed in there, and that's what the Holler Doja Holler music is, has always been. Yeah. And, and yeah. that was uh, Motown as well. And I want to kind of get a, a feel a little bit for, for Motown as a songwriter because, you know, 1963 was a real breakthrough year for Holland Dozier Holland, you know. And yeah. in addition to your success with the Marvelettes and, and Martha Reeves, you scored a top 10 pop hit with Mickey's Monkey for the Miracles and a, and a yeah. top 10 R&B hit with Mary Wells' recording of uh, You Lost the Sweetest Boy. And right. you know, before that, I mean, most of the Miracles and, and Mary Wells' material was written by Smokey Robinson, who, of right. course, was a a big part of, of Motown songwriting, as were people like Mickey Stevenson and, and, and Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong, Marvin Gaye, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, right. So you got all these talented people. Was there a, a spirit of of kind of competition among Motown songwriters, or was it more of a family kind of atmosphere? What was that like on a day-to-day well, basis? It was a little bit of both, a friendly competition, and uh, the guy that had the best song, uh, would get the release on whatever, whoever the artist was. I mean, uh, they, we had quality control. Huh, right, uh, right. And in those meetings, in those quiet, uh, quality control meetings, I think they were uh, done every Friday at the end of the week, 
we would uh, sit down and listen to uh, the staff and some of the employees would sit down and they'd have a pad and they would uh, write the song down to which they liked the best and uh, and Barry would ask questions about each song that were played in quality control. Do you like it? Do you think it's a hit? Does it, does, should they go back to the drawing board? Blah, blah, blah. You know, that type of thing. Yeah. Uh, and and so uh, most of the time, Holland uh, uh, Holland would always come out ahead. And so uh, a lot of the producers and songwriters had got a little peeved that time <laughs> that we were getting most of the releases and getting right. most of the success. And Barry had to tell him, said, listen, these guys are keeping the doors open over yeah. here with this stuff, so you should be glad because they're keeping, they're keeping your job. <laughs> right, right. So he got pissed off about them being upset about uh, his his fair-haired boys, right. HDH, you know. Right. So he didn't want anybody talking about us when we were, like he said, keeping the doors open. Well, yeah, you, you guys are writing the hits. That's why there's meat in the stew that everybody's eating every day at lunch, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why they had meat in, in, uh, in the stew, right? <laughs> um. You know, getting back to Martha and the Vandellas for a moment, um, let's talk about some of your other work with them. After they had a top 10 hit with your song Quicksand in 1963, they hit the top 10 once again in 1965 with Nowhere to Run. Well, you know, the, the background of the song of, of uh, Nowhere to Run basically is an idea, me being the idea of the group, uh, you know, a lot of times in, in a lot of those songs. Uh, uh, watching tanks drive down West Grand Boulevard during the riots times mm-hmm. in the 60s, and uh, and I saw people scrambling for places to hide and, and scared and Guns blowing and, and oh man, it was just a mess, man. It was like a war zone. You mm. thought you were on the yeah. front line somewhere overseas. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, uh, it was just uh, a pathetic, a pathetic time. But I guess it was a a, a time of uh, rebuilding and people coming together in one way or another. Or it was time for a change. A lot of people mm. would say. Would yeah. say. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and that song came out of that that turmoil hmm. uh, watching these people and running and, and we had like a lot of white white employees hmm. at motown and uh and we had to take them out the back door you know what i mean of wow. the, the studio yeah because uh so they wouldn't get hurt you know with all of this chaos that was happening you sure. know Wow. And they were like friends of ours. They were family. We were all family, you know. Yeah. And we didn't look at color because Motown was, was diversified with all kind of people, you know. Sure. And uh, so we took them out the back door and make sure they got to their cars and got got safely away from the neighborhood. You wow. Know? Yeah. Well, that's amazing. And that's how that song uh, came about, uh, Nowhere to Run, because we were trying to make a a way out of nowhere, so to speak. You yeah. know? That, that song really does kind of capture some of, you know, what what is a little bit of the, the dark edge of that time period. And, and I remember the first time I heard it was on the Good Good Morning Vietnam soundtrack. Right, um, right. And it was set to some pretty heavy images there as well. It's almost like, you know, The Stones' Gimme Shelter is another song that, that yeah. always seems to kind of just bring up that, that, that feeling, that tense That's feeling right. that seemed to exist. You're absolutely 
Right. That that uh, that feeling. They captured it in that in that movie too, as well. Yeah. And I, I've heard that there was some interesting. Uh, you know, you guys were not only writers, of course, but producers. I've heard there was some some interesting percussion that was used on that record. God, they, we had like. Uh, Broken tambourines and chains, and <laughs> you know, the, you know, in the wintertime we had these snow chains, right, right. And we used to take all this. We were trying everything to come up with new stuff. We didn't have synthesizers in yeah. those days, so you <laughs> <Right>. couldn't. So you, <laughs> so we, uh, we, only a few sounds uh, that were available to us, and so we had to come and bang on pots and pans. And, <laughs> And broken equipment and everything, and bang on the in the, uh, the, in the bottom of a piano with a hammer to see what kind of sounds and <laughs> it would create. But that we were going to, we were like pioneers with as far as yeah. the sonics concerned, sure. trying to find new sounds and new directions, you mm -hmm. know, try, new feelings. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you, you kept having hits with Martha and the Mandela's. I mean, another top ten, I'm Ready for Love. And then, you know, they landed a huge hit with the Holland Dozier Holland song, Jimmy Mack. Jimmy Mack uh, was a kid... Um, I met uh, his mother, uh, I think it was like 63 years thereabouts. We were in New York picking up, I think it was 63, the BMI Awards, you know, yeah. in New York. And um, and this lady uh, came up on stage to receive an award that her son had won. Uh, and his name was Jimmy Mack. And yeah. uh, he had wrote this song that, that, that brought him a top 10 award. And she was crying and saying that he'll never be be able to write another. He, he was he was killed in some street robbery or something, you know. Huh. And uh, his first, his only top ten he ever had or ever success that he ever had as far as songwriting was. And, uh, and she was crying, and it got to me in such a way that it was a wasn't a dry eye in the house mm. when right. she did this, yeah. and we were. But it stayed with me. It made it such an impact on me, you know. And uh, when I got back to Detroit, I decided that I wanted to uh, immortalize his name if I could in some way. Yeah. So uh, she would hear her, her son's name on this song. Hmm. Every time she would hear it, and hopefully it would be here too. Wow. But the song um, and quality control, uh, uh, one of the the purple people that uh, ran Quality Control that picked the records to be played in Quality Control didn't particularly think of that much about Jimmy Mack, the song. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> and she never would bring it out. Huh. Uh, you know, the song came, uh, uh, the song was sitting there on the shelf, you know, in other words. And uh, one day, Martha, Martha Reeves came in and said, hey, look, we're getting the, back, the short end of the stick here you got songs in the can there that you're not playing and you're not considering. And she was really pissed off, you know. So mm. so she got to Barry and Barry said, hey, look, bring out all of the stuff on Martha and the Vandellas. Bring, bring out and see what we got. Because right. they hadn't had a release in, in a while during sure. that time or something. Uh, so finally, the person that had the, the job of bringing out all the material off the shelf brought in Jimmy Mack. And everybody said, wow. <laughs> you know, uh, man, he and he got so 
Peter, he said, how long has this song been on the shelf in there? <laughs> he, said, oh, he said, well, I don't know. And I was sitting there in the meeting, and I just had a little kind of sneaky grin on my face, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I wasn't, I wasn't complaining about it because I knew eventually they would hear this song. Right, you know? yeah. right, right. Yeah, that, that I came up with. It. So, uh, <laughs> uh, they played it. Everybody was thumbs up all the way around. And wow. uh, it was about 25 of us voting. And it came out. He said, get this record ready and put it out in the next week, you know. Wow. And that's what happened. And it just it was an instant hit. Wow, that's amazing. Um, well, in 1963 and 1964, you guys uh, found success with a handful of Marvin Gaye hit singles. Um, Can I Get a Witness, You're a Wonderful One, um, Baby Don't Baby, You Do It, How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You, which, of course, was, was huge. Right, um, right. Talk about writing for and and producing, you know, Marvin Gaye, who is also a, a great songwriter and, and creator in his own right. That's right, that's right. Marvin was a little bit, uh, that was really before he started his producing and writing for yeah. him. Well, he did a little writing, too. For, right. I think he was on uh, Dancing in the Street or, or a couple of other things before he really... Uh, Came into to his own as a producer right. and, and and writer. I mean, I can remember uh, uh, how sweet it is, you know, uh, giving him a, a copy of the the demo after we had finished cutting the track, uh, and he had learned it fairly fast because he was going out of town, and Barry wanted us to write something for him. Uh, so he could release enough stuff, so he would have enough stuff in the can yeah. while he was on the road. So, uh, and I remember having given him the song to learn, and he did, and he didn't learn it. <laughs> he was somewhere playing golf or bullshitting around, <laughs> you know. What I mean? And uh, uh, and finally, uh, when it came, we had to call him and say, "Hey, man, you supposed to, the recording day is day. Where, where where are you come?" He said, "Oh man, I didn't know." Is it? Would, uh, you know, he said, I'll be there in a minute. So when he got there to the studio, he kind of found out he didn't even learn it. He had never listened to the song, wow. the demo. You know? <laughs> I said, oh, man, it's one thing. And he and I were very tired because we were in that uh, very close with the, uh, in the Anna, Anna Records stage. Mm, right, and, right. and he was on Popeye playing drums. You know? right, right. So we were, we were very tight. So he and I could get personal with each other. Right. And I said, man, you know, and we got a little personal at times, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I said, man, why, why did you do this, man? I, we got things to do, and you bushing around with this. And then he had his golf truck, clubs, and his cross slung across his back, you know. <laughs> And he didn't even hear the song. And so we, he said, well, just play the song, man. I don't want to hear all this shit. Just play the <laughs> <laughs> And then when we started playing the song, uh, the song was uh, too high. And we did it on purpose. We used to cut Marvin and, and, and Levi Stubbs with the keys just a little bit high so they had to reach <laughs> for the performance. So they, wow. had to, the, they had to reach for the notes, and, and that created a great... Uh, uh, performance yeah. mm. uh, from, from the, when they had to reach for it. Couldn't make it too easy for them. You know, yeah. had to make, them <laughs> make them you know what I mean? Yeah. And in this case, Marvin, uh, on How Sweet It Is, when the, when the key got a little bit too high, the notes went up to, a few too high, uh, I'm trying to say, uh, he would have to go into his falsetto. Right. And, and the way he would do that would be just 
is just uh, marvelous. I mean, he, right. he he would create such a sound uh, that uh, he developed his own style that way yeah. by having to do after he cuts us out, you know, <laughs> for, <laughs> for, for for cutting it too high. Right. You know, uh, he was man, you motherfucker, you MF, <laughs> always cutting this shit. Dude. Then I had to try to figure out how to sing and the cut. The track is already cut. So I gotta try to make some out of this shit. You know what I mean? He said, "That's why you should have learned the song." <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> With all these legendary artists and legendary recordings, there is no way to talk about Holland Dozier Holland without talking about the Supremes. Um, starting with the 1963 top five R&B single, When the Love Light Starts Shining Through His Eyes, you guys then went on to write and produce like 20-something consecutive singles for them over right. the next four or five years. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and an astounding 10 of those songs hit number one on Billboard's pop charts, uh, starting with Where Did Our Love Go? which yeah. is not only the Supremes' first number one, but it was Holland Dozier Holland's first number one pop hit as songwriters. that that song was originally offered to the Marvelettes. How did the Supremes end up cutting it instead? Well, the Marvelettes I uh, offered, I, I had cut the track. I came up with the song originally. And uh, I, being, uh, like I say, the idea man of the group, I would come up with a lot of this stuff and, and that happened to be one. One of those songs that were different from anything else we had ever done, you know. Mm. Uh, so, uh, uh, I, uh, Cut the track and, and uh, had the marvelous in mind. Gladys Horton of the group told me, "No, nah, honey, we don't do shit like that." You know? <laughs> <laughs> and because they were, she was a little cocky because they had they had three or four big hits, you know. What I mean? Right. And so she could talk this way and be disrespectful. I thought. <laughs> <You know? laughs> And I said, oh, baby, I said, you feel that bad? Do you feel that way about the song? And she said, no, nah, my, what, what are you trying to do to us? I mean, that's that's not, that's, I don't know what this is, but it, it's not us. Hmm. You know, I said, I said, oh, wow. So she was adamant about it. So I said, man, I got to get some. One thing with a rule over there, if you cut a track and you didn't finish it on somebody and get it, it would be taken out of your, eventually taken out of your pocket, out yeah, of your royalties, or some way, you'd have to pay for it, yeah. the track, you know, that would, that uh, that you cut. So, uh, <clears throat> I looked at the, the roster, and the only person I could get to do this song after the Marvelous refused, it was the Supremes, they were like the low, low uh, act on the total pole, so mm, to speak, you right. know, and, um, uh, um, and we were trying to figure out, at least I was trying to figure out how to 
uh, fix the damage <laughs> yeah, that I created. You know? <laughs> right. Because because nobody not 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 that I shopped around to everybody, but uh, since the Marvelous didn't have it, we wanted a name act to do it sure. as well. So I knew I had to get uh, give it to somebody, but it wind up it was not to be. So I talked Mary Wilson and I said, "Look, you got to listen to this song, baby. This song I'm so excited about it. It's, it's especially for you girls. I mean, yeah. it's just, <laughs> boy, it just how it breathes, y'all. I, I was giving them all of those superlatives yeah. and bullshit. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Try to get her excited about doing the song. Right. And, uh, and she said, "Wait a minute, is this the same song that?" Uh, the Marvelous Turned Down. I, I said, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Said, this song has always been for you all. He said, Lamont, don't lie to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> I know because everybody knows this is a song uh, that nobody wanted. You know, I said, I, I said, oh. Then she got pissed. You're always giving us second hand, the, the hand-me-downs that nobody else wants. I said, no, I'm telling you, baby, this is your song from the get-go. I, so, so uh, and then uh, uh, Diane heard it and she started crying. I mean, all this shit that y'all giving us is uh, nobody, want, nobody else wanted. Anyway, we calmed them down, got them in the studio, and uh, and to learn the song. And so they couldn't, they couldn't be too adamant about turning it down because they they didn't have no re- release at the time. Right. And nobody, they were calling them the no hit Supremes at the time. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, how, you know how kids are. Yeah, you know, yeah. they were teasing the, uh, and they were like considered the failures. Uh, they in, in their own mind. You right, know? right. But anyway, they got them in the studio and learned the songs, and I had worked out all of this. It's really, I thought, deep background parts, and this just show you how stuff works. You know, sometimes the song don't want to need all of that stuff. And sometimes a song wants you to, the song writes itself in a lot of ways, sure, you know yeah. what I mean? No matter what you try to do, it, it winds up being the way it wants to be. Hmm. It has a life of its own, the song, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. So I had written all of these parts and blah, blah, background parts, intricate backgrounds, and I thought it was intricate and stuff. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and she got the song, she started singing the song, and the song was too low. Because it was in Gladys Horton's key, and, and Diane always sung higher than Gladys. Right. And uh, in in singing the song, she had this attitude. She didn't want to sing the song, and she was pissed off for the, you know she, that she thought the song was just another waste of her time. Right. And then um, when she was singing the day, this attitude that she yeah. added to it was this this smelled of her discontent, disfavor, discontent, whatever. Yeah, you can hear the pissed off attitude, but it, it wound up being just what the song wanted. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, just what the song needed, you know. It, and um, I go to them, I said, man, you hear it? what are we going to do about this uh, talking to Eddie? He said, no, I'm going to just let her go, let her go, let, let, let her sing it, man, because this is it's a mood there, you know. Right. And sure enough, it was, and then wow. it, it came out to be her style right. was 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 made that night. You yeah. know, wow. I mean that record kicked off a, a streak of five oh, consecutive man. number one <laughs> pop singles for the Jeez. Supremes. The, That's the, right. Everything we did on those girls just seemed like the it's like at the carnival, 
Dump, ding, dump, <laughs> ding. You know, I mean, we couldn't lose. Uh, we couldn't lose. You know, everything yeah. we did, I, stuff I even thought was just so so was going at number one. I said, "What the hell?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was just so one. It was a great time uh, for the for the the group as well as for the company. It kind of makes me think, like from a from a songwriter perspective, where did our love go? Kicked off that little streak of of five consecutive number one pop records. The next one was Baby Love. Now, the word "baby" appears sixty eight times in in Where Did Our Love Go? And obviously, <laughs> Baby Love following up on that. Was there kind of a a strategy, like, hey, this baby thing is our hook. Let's let's go with that. Yeah, it, it, you're right, and it was because we were using this baby thing, and uh, since. Uh, the baby thing was a, a hook of its own, you know, right. that we decided to take advantage of it. The, the, the people loved it. Uh, at least they were going for it. So yeah. <laughs> we went along with it with the flow. You know, you don't, you don't try to re- reinvent the wheel. I right. mean, you, <laughs> go, with the, go with the winning formula. <laughs> yeah, you follow the flow, you know, man. Right. So right. Uh, we just, uh, that's what we did. And, uh, and they were just uh, like... Uh, the, the baby babies that I put on Word I Love go. Right. It was there for a reason. After I couldn't work out this intricate background well. <laughs> that and, and the song didn't really need it or call, didn't want it. Yeah. Because right. I tried a few things and, and it was just wasn't feeling right or chilling, you know. Sure. And, and uh, Florence was like, we can't sing. There's only two of us. We're only going to sing all those parts you give us. <laughs> I said, I said and I, we were arguing. It was of a night and we were <laughs> cussing at each other and I, and I said please I said we'll, we'll just do this give me baby baby and I'll point to you and you just sing baby baby you know you, you know where do I love go baby that's all you had to sing love damn it, it. <laughs> you, you know and uh, that's how it went down you know yeah. and, and that's all the song needed you yeah, know, and, sure. and with Diane's performance you know wow. I mean? Wow. With her pissed off at it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, the yeah. next massive Supremes hit was Come See About Me, which was followed by the absolute all-time classic Stop in the Name of Love. Oh, yeah. Where did the idea for that song come from? Oh, God. <laughs> I, I've told this story from time to time. But I got caught in a, uh, in a compromising position in a no-tail motel. <laughs> and uh, I was... I was with uh, another girl besides the girl I was supposed to be with. <laughs> I put it that way. <laughs> and um, about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, doors slam, knocking, bam, noise, kicking on the door to this room that I was in with another girl. And the, the one that was doing all the kicking was supposed to be my main, my main squeeze. You know right. What <laughs> But she was cursing outside the door and scaring everybody in the whole motel. There right. was a whole lot of people that was there that shouldn't have been there. <laughs> <laughs> Under the certain circumstances, you know what I mean? Right. And uh, uh, so people were like uh, really frightened, looking out the window, who in the hell everybody thought was their wives or girlfriend. Anyway, it happened to be buying this particular one. <laughs> <laughs> And then I laid there, and the girl, she was so frightened because she had hurt uh, this girl's reputation. Uh, so she got out the back, uh, the bathroom window of the, of the room and, right. and, and got her out of there. And then I answered the door and tried to act like I was asleep. And, you know, I said, oh, I, I, I had too much uh, 
to, to drink at the studio, and I, and then I came. I was working with the tops, uh, and, and I was just tired, so I thought I'd come up here instead of driving all the way home. I thought I'd come up here and just grab a room and, and take a few weeks, you know, right. that type of thing. She was, you're a liar. Where is it, bitch? You know, <laughs> I know she's in there somewhere. I said, what are you talking about? What, what are you talking about, girl? I said, would you stop this? I'm trying to defuse the, the argument. I said, girl, would you stop this? I mean, please, please, baby, said, why don't you stop in the name of love? Wow. And I said, wait a minute. She said, that ain't funny. And I said, she said that ain't, that's not going to do it for me. I said, wait a minute, did you hear what I said? Stop it. I said, did you hear that cash register? <laughs> you know, hoping that she would uh, laugh about it. So, right. uh, but she didn't. So, But we eventually... We eventually cooled it out, and we left there together. But the next day, Brian was at the piano, and he was playing. He always started off his song ideas with sounding like ballads, you know. Right. And he was playing this particular hook. He didn't have nothing but the hook. And I was sitting there listening. I said, I said man, I got the right the right thing, but we're going to have to pick up the tempo, though. He said, what are you talking about? I said, just keep playing that melody. Let me see if it's going to work. I was in my mind, you know. Yeah. And then I told him, pop, and I stopped. I said, stop. And I stopped his hand from playing. In the name of, and I continued, you know, before you break my heart. Stop. In the name of love. He said, yeah, yeah. And then Brian, uh, me, Eddie was in there. Said, yeah, that's it, man. That's it. Oh, wow. That's it. And then we started putting the pieces together. You know? <laughs> wow. <laughs> The fifth song in that streak of, of the first streak of consecutive Supremes number ones was Back in My Arms Again, which spent a week at number one on the Billboard pop chart before it got knocked out of the number one spot by another Holland Dozier Holland song, I Can't Help Myself, Sugar Pie Honey Bunch. crazy to get knocked out of number one by yourself <laughs> but uh you know you guys had, had already been working with the four tops and and scored a hit the previous year with baby i need your loving but i can't help myself was their first number one hit and and remains uh, an absolute classic um yeah, talk about yeah. that song uh can't help myself uh was uh, an idea i got from my grandfather my grandfather as a kid i used to watch him my grandmother first of all had a home beauty shop Hmm. And she had customers coming to her house. My grandfather would be in the front uh, garden uh, of the of the house, uh, picking and you know planting his flowers and and vegetables and what have you. Right. And and I would be sitting on the on the front porch, just watching people because I was a people watcher. I used to watch people and listen to them and right. eavesdrop on the conversations. Uh, uh, and every morning 
that the, the customs of my grandmother would come in and come in down the walkway, and he would be he was a bit of a flirt, you know. <laughs> and he would say, "Good morning, sugar pie. How you doing, honey bunch?" You know, and I was. <laughs> And I used to sit there and listen to it, kind of laugh, chuckle to myself, even though I was about like uh, 12, 13 or that. But uh, I, I stayed in my mind. And uh, at this particular time, when I got to Motown, and I was in there, dun 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 dun, playing this bass figure, dun 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 Thinking about him, you know, mm, wow. and that's how that started, you know. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's funny how memories and, and life lessons uh, can play into writing songs. Yeah. A lot of the, the songs that we came here with yeah. had a lot of uh, memories of life, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I've heard that, that Columbia Records had some old Four Tops masters, and they were trying to, you know, rush out a single to kind of piggyback off the success of, of I Can't Help Myself, which meant that's you guys right. had to... Had to move quick to to get that follow up hit. Talk about what happened there. That was when I came up with another idea. As I said, well, a lot of those songs in those days, everybody tried to copy. If they had a hit, they want to do another one like that, you right. know. Mm -hmm. So that idea being in my in, in my mind was saying uh, it's the same old song, but <laughs> with a different meaning since you've been gone. That's the way I put it. Yeah. you know. So I changed the baseline. I wanted to keep a, a bass line going, you know, uh, so you get the same feel of I can't help myself. Yeah. But a different bass line and a different uh, melody of sorts, you know, but with uh, similar feeling, yeah. you know. Yeah. And that's how I came up with the, it's the same old song, but with a different meaning since you've been gone, you know, that yeah. type of thing. Yeah. And that was the start, and we jumped right in because of... Um, uh, the group had to go out of town, and also we was dealing with Columbia, trying to capitalize off the of the, the the group's popularity then, you right, know. Right, right. And so we naturally won and beat out that whatever Columbia was trying to do. <laughs> I've heard that re that record was was produced and actually pressed in, in, in the same day. Is that true? Oh uh, yeah, that's what Jeez. we had the, uh, a situation and uh, the process over at Motown that we could uh, we had our own uh, pressing situation, you know, in the basement, and, and so we could get things moving pretty fast, you know. Wow. If we had to, <laughs> if if uh, a situation arose like the one at the Columbia. That's wild. So we we pressed this thing up real fast. So as Barry came down and heard it in the studio, he said, "Press it up, man. Let's get it out." You know, Jeez. and that was, you know, <laughs> and we, you know, as soon as Levi I was through putting his lead on, it, and I finished the background with the marvelous, I mean, with the the tops and the the Andantes. Yeah, uh, we uh, finished it off in in about five or six hours. You know? Wow. 
Wow, that's amazing. You know, and, and I'm thinking about this time period when, when you're having this, you know, this moment of success with Martha and the Mandelas and the Supremes and the Four Tops. We're talking about 63, 64, 65. At the same time, you know, Phil Spector's over there producing hits for the Crystals and the Ronettes. And, of course, the Beatles are about to show up and kind of turn the world upside down. Right. You know, there's this thing when, when, you're, when you're kind of coming up from the bottom, you see everybody ahead of you and you can see who you're trying to climb through to get to success. Then when you're at the top, I wonder, do you feel people breathing down your neck? You know, like how, how mindful were you of, of these other acts and, you know, these other movements in music? And, and did, did you feel that competition or were you just so focused that you didn't have time oh, to think about it? But, yeah, we, we listen to everybody, so especially Beatles climbing on our hmm. up our backs, you know, <laughs> and, and, and uh, Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys, you know, uh, uh, and, and everybody else, whoever had uh, we felt was a threat to our, <laughs> to our yeah. spot on the chart. Yeah. You know, man? <laughs> so we we, but they, it was good though. It was a good competition though. Yeah. I mean, it was it kept us on our toes. That's what it did. Yeah. And and kept us. Although we had a lot of work we were doing, uh, and there's a lot of work we were always trying to keep up. Uh, as soon as one the song fell off the chart. We had to jump back on yeah. with as many as we can. I mean, it was just crazy. Well, and with that eight-hour time change, you know, you know that over there in England, while you're sleeping, Lennon and McCartney are writing a song. So that's, <laughs> that's got to get under your skin. Hey, you're thinking right. That's how we think. We had to try to figure out the psychology of yeah. what these guys were doing to try to beat them to the punch, you know. <laughs> right, and right. Uh, and try to have more stuff on the charts than they had, yeah. you know yeah. what I mean? I want to talk a little bit more about your success with the Four Tops for a moment before we return to the Supremes. Um, in 1966, you guys had a top five R&B hit with them on Shake Me, Wake Me When It's Over uh, before hitting number one pop and number one R&B yet again with uh, Reach Out, I'll Be There. That's where uh, Brian and my uh, classical and gospel uh, feeling got together, mm. very poignantly, yeah. I might say. Uh, Brian was playing, dun, dun, dun. it was just like, it felt like a, like a Russian theme, or so, so, Cossack or something, yeah. you know. Dun, 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 dun. Then he was playing it slow again, I said, and I walked in, I said, man, what's that? He said, oh, it's just something I'm just fooling around with. And then he said, but I can't go nowhere with it because this melody is so weird. He said, I, can't, I don't know what to do with it. Right. <laughs> and, he was, and he was just playing. And right. I said, pick it up, man. I picked it up a little bit. I'm feeling something. And then I sat on beside him on the piano. Uh, uh, and then he kept playing. He picked up the tempo a little bit. Yeah, that's it. A little bit faster. 
Nah, just keep playing for a minute. I'll get it in a minute. Yeah. Then I pushed his hand out of the way. And if you feel it, I went to the gospel. <laughs> you know, right. and that's what, how how that came about. Wow. Well, that's such a great one. Man, you, you guys had hits with the Four Tops, Standing in the Shadows of Love, and Bernadette, which is an amazing record. Um, <laughs> when you're working with a singer like Levi Stubbs, I mean, what, do you just, like, pull the string and let him go? Or, I mean, how much coaching do you do to try to get that kind of performance out of him? Oh, we, 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 and with all the artists, we, did the, we didn't let them go off on their own because they had no idea what feeling we had in mind mm. or what we were trying to project as far as the song is concerned. So we didn't let them go on, on a tangent on by themselves. They had to be led. I mean, right. once we got the main melody and the, and the feeling and the philosophy of what we were trying, singing about, uh, we, we showed them how it, the song should be treated. Mm. And then if they wanted to add something like Levi and Marvin would do in the performance, they're fine. But yeah. first of all, there was a a certain type of rule we had to follow as far as the song is concerned. Well, the emotion is certainly there in, in Bernadette. And I've read that that song was written about the same woman who inspired another Supreme's number one, I Hear a Symphony, um, which topped the pop chart in 1966. Tell us about that. Well, 
1966 and, and 67, the Supremes hit uh, another uh, streak of consecutive number one hits pinned by Holland Dozier Holland, starting with You Can't Hurry Love, followed right after that by You Keep Me Hanging On. And, and both those songs are such classics, and they both, to my ear, have a little bit more of a, a rock influence than maybe some of the previous uh, Supreme stuff that you guys had done, and of course, times were kind of starting to change. Music was starting to change, but was that right. was that intentional? Were you guys kind of saying, "Hey, let's bring in some more of these these rock elements"? Very much so. We kind of keep it up with the time, and we saw the feeling of the people and what they were buying and what they were gravitating gravitating to. Uh, what was being said and played, and and so those those things uh, set me free. And that particular song, I used to watch Walter Winchell. On a radio, on a hear him on a on the newscast. Yeah. And 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 I was in there listening. Now the editorial room of the Jersey Journal and Walter Winchell. Good evening, Mr. Mr. North of South America. And by shortwave overseas, let's go to press. Flash. Wow. United States Navy planes have sunk or damaged 21 channels. Well, I heard something else though when he was playing that little that little busy riff. And then I got in the studio one later years later. And uh, I said, why don't we try that? We've got four guitars. And then we played that. I said, I want you all to play on this one note, you know. <laughs> and we got the guys together, and they started, you know, playing the thing. And it, and it came off, you know. We, awesome. we tried, Again, we were trying all kind of different sounds and sure. things. Wow, that's great. last two Holland Dozier Holland songs that the Supremes would take to the top of the Billboard pop chart were Love Is Here and Now You're Gone and The Happening from 1967. Right. I believe both those songs were cut in Los Angeles rather than Detroit. So That's right. You've yeah. actually got a whole new environment then to, to soak up um, a, a new style. I'm imagining a, a group of different musicians. Um, what kind of adjustment was that for you, and, and did that provide more inspiration or more difficulty? Well, it, it was just... Uh, you know, whatever was around for the moment, that's 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 the feel we went for. I mean, well, that was the, we adjusted to the condition, whatever it was. In other words, uh, we were in, in L.A. doing uh, music for a movie. You know, uh, the happening. You know, uh, uh, love is here is now. You're gone. Some uh, uh, the music uh, idea that we had. Uh, that we had for that movie or the happening with the Anthony Quinn and uh, mm-hmm. whoever else. <laughs> but the uh, movie wasn't but, as successful as the song. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, we were known to a lot of the musicians right. out there in the California. That they were just so uh, happy to be on one of our sessions or be a part of this. Yeah, mm-hmm. what we were creating. So we had fun with it. Although we had a big orchestra, about forty pieces. Wow. Was, uh, Man, uh, it still come off uh, a hit. I think we still came up with the right stuff. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, well, 1967 was a little bit of a transitional time for, for Holland Dozier. Holland, you, you landed a, a couple of top 20 pop singles with the four tops, uh, Seven Rooms of Gloom, and You Keep Running Away. Um, you had a top 10 R&B hit with Marvin Gaye's Your Unchanging Love. And then, of course, you know, the Supremes are, are always in there having the hits. Uh, top mm-hmm. 10 with You Keep Running Away. And then uh, top five pop and R&B hit, uh, Reflections, which is one of my favorites. Through the mirror of my mind, time after time, I see reflections of you and me. Reflections of the way life used to be. Reflections um, kind of incorporated uh, like some psychedelic elements, so you guys are kind of moving to the next level. He's a little bit of rock, you know, a little psychedelic, and and I'm, you know, I'm curious. Like we've talked about being open-minded and and drawing from a lot of different. you know, types of music and keeping your ears open. And, and so, you know, we've kind of addressed that in a way, but I'm kind of curious in terms of how you thought of yourself, you know, when you're having, you know, pop chart success, uh, at least as much pop chart success as R and B success, but then you're, you know, you're getting covered by rock acts like vanilla fudge, you know, the genres are just getting <laughs> crossed in a lot of ways. And, and I'm wondering if at that time, would you have described yourself as I'm a pop songwriter, I'm an R&B songwriter, or did you ever worry about labels? We always call ourselves R&B pop writers uh, because basically that's what we, our music uh, uh, was R&B pop. I mean, yeah. it was a little yeah. bit of both genres. And um, uh, when the Vanilla, Vanilla Fudge did uh, uh, You Keep Me Hanging On, uh, and it was so huge with that, uh, that psychedelic approach that we thought that was very creative. So, I mean, uh, at the psychedelic movement was as coming in, we thought we should join the crowd of, of, <laughs> or, the, or the or the parade. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we came up with, in the studio, Brian and I were sitting there trying to work out some sounds and things and using all kind of... Uh, uh, when you tune up a room, you you, you use this, this kind of phase system mm, right. and different uh, things that we had that we would use. So we came up with this phaser yeah. type of sound that they used to tune up the room. Wow. And, and we were doing that. We, we stumbled into the... You know, and, <laughs> and that became the, the beginning of... Down, down, down. You know, That's it great. made it kind of... A eerie kind of sound right. guitars with a little string, not a whole lot of strings, just, just about like six or seven strings. <laughs> right. You know, just enough just to add to that that, that nuance of yeah. that, that mystique. Yeah, and it's such a great record. Um, by the late 1960s, you and, and the Holland Brothers left Motown. You set up your own Hot Wax and Invictus labels, and, and you had your first... R&B Top 10 with Crumbs Off the Table by Glass House in 1969, followed by your first Top 5 pop hit the following year with a great record, Give Me Just a Little More Time by Cherry right. on the Board. Give me just a little more time And I'll surely grow Give me just a little more time And I'll surely grow So we know that that venture... It was a success, but talk about why you guys decided to leave Motown and and what you were feeling when you first kind of 
you know, struck out on your own in terms of, you know, fear, excitement, <laughs> confidence, whatever is kind of going through your head as you say, hey, we've had all this success doing things a certain way. Now we're striking out on our own. We're going to kind of jump off that cliff and see what happens. Well, yeah, the, the thing was, we didn't want to leave Motown. We hmm. had been talking about or talking to the powers that be at Motown that they would give us possibly a, a label of our own with our own artists, uh, like a subsidiary label. Right. Uh, and we thought we earned that, and then we were selling literally hundreds of millions of records for this company. And we thought we should be... Uh, uh, compensated, you know, for, sure. uh, uh, and so, but they didn't feel that way about it. So we, uh, after after we had conversations and, and it looked like they were going to go for it, then they reneged. Mm-hmm. So we decided, that, hey, maybe that's that's just time for us to leave. So, yeah. and knowing that it was so many companies, every company on the block, you might say, uh, wanted to, to have us on their label, you know, capital. I mean. Uh, Casablanca, on and on and on. So right. we, out of the many companies, we picked Capital and Casablanca. Yeah, yeah. And so you kind of uh, knew, like, hey, we're we're going to be fine. Yeah. Oh, it wasn't any fear about leaving. It was just uh, who are we going to pick, you know? And, <laughs> right. And uh, who wants to, who wants to pay the the money it was going to take to help us set up our own label? You know. What I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, most of those Hot Wax and Invictus hits were written by Holland Dozier Holland and Ron Dunbar, uh, including Band of Gold, which was a top five pop hit for Frida Payne in lyrics describe a couple who they spend the night in separate rooms on their honeymoon <laughs> while she longs for him to come through the door and love her like he tried before and I just I gotta ask what is going on <laughs> <laughs> well we, we we did it on purpose you know we wanted to create some mystique about yeah. what was going on between these two people and and the story is that the guy uh, uh, although he loved her and she loved him, and uh, and uh, he had tried to make love to her before, but it was just wasn't in him because he had other feelings. Yeah. He was uh, gay, and uh, and he uh, just couldn't get it up for her hmm. in that in that way. Although they got married and everything, he wanted to try to make it happen, but it just didn't happen because he 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 didn't feel that way. Wow. You know? yeah. And that's what that story was about. That's kind of edgy stuff to be writing about yeah. in 1970. Well, you know, we thought people, it was time for people to, people were getting edgy. We thought that was the next big wave. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <People>. <laughs> so we figured that was coming sooner or later, so we might well set the trend or set the march. You know? I, I thought I had heard the most awkward hotel story that I was going to hear in this interview, but I think that that, that, that song might be more awkward than the first one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what it was really about. Right, uh, right. The guy couldn't do, uh, he couldn't do what he he really felt, you know oh, what I mean? Yeah. Just, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, you know, over a decade after you had recorded as Lamont Anthony, you turned to recording once again in 1972, and you scored a top 10 R&B hit with the Holland Dozier Holland pen, Why Can't We Be Lovers? Was it a lot of fun to go back then to being an artist? You'd said that originally that was kind of your dream. And what, what inspired well, you to go back at that point? I thought it was, we had come to a, like a fork in the road, the, the guys and I, and uh, I felt like I had wrote a couple of songs uh, that I'd put in my back pocket, so to speak, for myself. And if the opportunity arose and the time came about for me to do these songs, I would, I would take the plunge and, why can't we be lovers? Were was the time that uh, I felt I felt I'd reach that time or come to that time where I should sing the song. So that's what I did, and, and it became a, a pretty big hit. Uh, it was such a huge hit in England. Uh, and they have Northern Soul over there, and that's mm-hmm. what their main theme was. Why can't we be lovers? Yeah. And, and uh, when I went there. Uh, they were just so in love with uh, Lamont Dozier. I said, man, you know, I was, it just blew me away. You know, I could get into this. Yeah, as far as, <laughs> as, far as an artist is concerned. So uh, right. that's what started that that, yeah. that movement. And then we were together from 62 to 72, Holland Dozier Holland. And I thought it was time for me to make the move. And we, we didn't split up. It was uh, kind of a bit of a... Uh, well, it was not a nice ending for Holland O'Jahala in that respect, but uh, we decided, that we, we eventually uh, ironed out our differences and decided to go all separate ways. Yeah, yeah. And over time, did you guys kind of work through some of that stuff on a personal level? Oh, yeah, we, yeah, we patched up stuff like that. When you when you work it, and as long as they have it under the, under the, the, the circumstances we had to work on and, and, and work hard and, and accomplish what we accomplished, uh, you know, that love never, never dies, you know. Yeah. No yeah. matter what differences you may have, you're going to always uh, feel a certain uh, something yeah. for, for your, your ex-partners or your, uh, you know, we, we could never uh, not feel something, you know what right. I mean? Because yeah. we had too, too much together. Yeah, yeah. You know, one thing that's interesting to me about that period where y- you guys have kind of have split and, and you're focusing on kind of an artist, you know, career, pretty successful uh, run of, of singles there in, in the in the mid to late 70s. Um, mm-hmm. You had done this record for ABC um, called Out Here on My Own, which is an appropriate uh, title given that, what was That was the reason why, you know, it, yeah. it was, I was saying something. You know? Right, right. But the, the thing that's interesting to me about that is that you had two hit singles off that record, um, Tried to Hold On to My Woman and Fish Ain't Biting. And, right. and both those songs hit the R&B top five. I mean, you know. Right. But the thing that interests me is that they were written by McKinley Jackson and James Reddick. Um, now I'm thinking, why was the guy who'd written more hit songs in the last decade than anyone not named Lennon and McCartney <laughs> looking to outside writers for material at that point? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I was in a lawsuit with Holland, so 
joke. I'll put it that way. You, you uh, finally brought it out. <laughs> I see. <laughs> and I couldn't, and I had a contract. Uh, we had a writer's contract together. And um, mm. so when I made that move, I, there were certain things I had uh, I couldn't do under, the, uh, under those contracts that were I still see. existing. So uh, when I left, uh, McKinley was uh, one of the, the musicians that I took with me. Right, and uh, and uh, Reddick was uh, just a uh, a friend of mine, you know. Uh, hmm. that I just threw his name on it, and I see. as well as McKinley. <laughs> so you know that's how. Yeah, I see. I see. What <laughs> so you're yeah, I mean, you you already figured it out. So, I thought <laughs> it seems a little weird that some other guys wrote these right, uh, songs right. for one of the greatest songwriters on the face of the planet. So. <laughs> Use that same formula. I'd use it with the uh, give me just a little more time. And we had this contract with still with Motown, right? And, and uh, uh, band. Now that you're going with band to go, we did the same thing. We put some other people's names on it, but huh. uh, but everybody knew that was Holland or you hmm, know, right? I mean? Right. Well, but uh, that's because of the existing contracts. We had to <laughs> use other, other names. Had to get creative. Right. <laughs> um, well, the 1970s is when we begin seeing rock acts have serious hits with covers of some of your Motown era songs. And, and I'm thinking of uh, in 1972, the band had a, a top 40 pop hit with Don't Do It, which, had, you know, of course, previously been recorded by Marvin Gaye as, as Baby right. Don't Do It, which I, I love that record. Um, right. And then in 1975, the Doobie Brothers went to number right. 11 on the pop chart with Take, Take Me, Me In Your Arms. Yeah, and right. that had been a, a hit for, for Kim Weston as well as the Isley Brothers. And you, know, right. you start seeing, you know, James Taylor having a top five pop hit with How Sweet It Is To Be Loved By You or, you know, Linda Ronstadt did basically the same thing with, with Heat Wave. And as we were preparing for this interview, I realized that you have written 14 songs that have hit the top 40 pop chart only to then become top 40 pop hits later on by an entirely different artist. And what really blows my mind is that of those 14 songs, four of them were actually top 40 pop hits a total of three times by three different artists, which is just amazing. Now, when you guys were writing these songs, did you ever imagine that they would endure and and become such classics? Or, or, Or has the way that your songs have survived and, you know, survived through decades and fads i mean has that has that been a surprise to you how do you kind of process well, that you know uh, you can never you can never guess uh uh, uh or figure out what what what's going to be a hit i mean if, if i could do that or anybody for that matter could do that god they would be they would be a, a living god <laughs> <laughs> of songwriting or whatever right. but no you can't really uh figure that out you can just get as close to the feeling um, um, as you can to what's going on in the world. You know, try to feel people yeah. and, and, and point, uh, have the have your directions and, and uh, in the right place. You know what I mean? So, sure. so you'll be able to touch uh, as many people as possible around the world. Right. You know, but and when they and when they tap into you. And what you're feeling, uh, you get that longevity, you know. Sure. 
Sure. Wow. Well, and that continued into the '80s when I mean Phil Collins became a, a really kind of interesting part of your career. He had a right. top ten hit with the cover of "You Can't Hurry Love." Then he brought you yeah. in to contribute a couple songs to Eric Clapton's August album, which he was producing. Right. You know, and you gave them "Run" and "Hung Up on Your Love," which you wrote solo. But then you and Phil collaborated on a few songs for the soundtrack of the film Buster. He was doing a movie buster, okay. and he called me and he asked Lamont, oh, oh, "Listen, uh, I don't want to do any music. I want to just concentrate on my acting for the part. And and uh, can you come up with some music for the for the movie? You know, the people want some movie movie music and blah blah blah. But uh, it, it, this, the movie is about uh, took place in the in the sixties or uh, yes, in the early sixties." And asked me could I give him something that would fit the time, you know. So naturally, I just sit down and uh, start plunking away and doing my thing, uh, and came up with the two hearts, you know. And uh, the two hearts thing was we won every possible award you could win uh, in the states and in Europe as well. And we won every award except the uh, the Academy Award to go the Oscar. Jeez, right. We won an awful lot of accolades on that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's remarkable to me just to look at the you know the same guy who's writing you know huge hit songs in 1963 is is writing huge hit songs in the late 1980s and you know in that era you were obviously collaborating with Phil you were collaborating with uh, Mick Hucknall of of Simply Red with with him you wrote their top ten adult contemporary hit you've got it right the one that that fascinates me the most is debbie gibson because uh, you you and debbie wrote uh her top 30 pop hit anything is possible and, and i think it's interesting enough that you know when you were 25 or 30 you were able to sort of get into the mind of of teenage girls and write songs that would appeal to them but but here you are at this point you're you're pushing 50 right. and you've not lost that that touch <laughs> and, and I, you know as a songwriter how do you kind of Stay connected with that young pop audience, even as you're maturing and, and having very different life experiences. I think it's a, like I've always said, uh, like when I'm in my classrooms uh, teaching songwriting, it's a work ethic that you have to have. Hmm. And if you have that work ethic coming in from the start, you never lose it. I use that same work ethic at Motown that I use today, and I haven't lost no feeling. Uh, it hasn't dulled in any sense. <laughs> My same, uh, my same, same ideas that I had about uh, that, that uh, used uh, certain approaches that, or styles or, or different things you think about, right. they still exist. That they, they don't go away. They just uh, you just look for more ideas and things to write about. I mean, yeah. y- your style stays the same. You know, it, yeah. it doesn't change. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think that that this most recent record you you've just done this album this year called reimagination which is kind of a a stripped down album of of some of your best known songs you've got some great guests on there like leanne womack and graham nash todd rundgren mark cohen and and uh gregory porter who who appears on a great remake of of how sweet it is to be loved by you how sweet it is to be loved by you How sweet it is to be loved by you I needed the shelter of someone's arms 
And there you were. There you were. I need I gotta say, Gregory Porter, I mean, I love his voice. He's such a great singer. But but man, there you are right next to him on this record, seven (laughs) decades into your into your career and holding your own. I mean, you guys sound fabulous together. And you know, a lot of the songs, and, and these are songs that, you know, are, are, are hit songs, some of the highlights of your catalog. Um, and you had mentioned earlier about the writing process. Sometimes you guys would kind of write kind of slow, start as a ballad, and, and then speed it up. But, you know, uh, a, a lot of those up-tempo pop hits are represented on this album kind of in that slower, more uh, reflective yeah. way, you know. And it, the way it, they were originally a uh, way they were originally started out to be you know? it, it, it highlights too like i listen to this i'm I'm going wow a lot of these up-tempo feel-good songs are actually really sad <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right they really were sad love songs uh unrequ- about unrequited love and and people that were searching for love and never finding or if they had it it went bad you know yeah, what i mean yeah. it, it, it was that type of theme that we were no, and we wrote basically for women, you know, because mm. women were always getting the short end of the stick right. from us, from us guys, you know. <laughs> right. right. Now, what made you kind of say, "Hey, it's 2018. I- I'm ready to go in and 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 do this and kind of and shed kind of a different light on some of these familiar songs." Well, you know, I had no really uh, no big idea about doing this. Uh, uh, the Mullen producer. Uh, the, who produced the thing uh, was was asking me to do the thing for 15 years or more, huh. and I decided to say, hey, well, why not? You know, I the, so I just dived right into it, and uh, yeah, and uh, and he he did a fantastic uh, production the situation. Yeah, sure and made did. it easy and made it easy for me to do because he does a lot of Johnny Mathis and stuff. Mm. And, yeah, and, and a lot of whole lot of other people as well. Yeah, yeah, but he's one of the best. The reviews have been just spectacular on, on that the Reimagine album. Yeah, yeah. More than really I could great. ever, you know, more than I could ever think about. I mean, I, I, I didn't know what they would say, but with, uh, with me doing it, doing those classics uh, this way, but uh, they seemed to like it very well. They, thought, yeah. uh, they think that I sounded good and the people I had with me were good. And yeah. So we made a good record. Yeah, it's fantastic. Very good record. Um, well, Lamont, I can't tell you what a absolute thrill and honor it has been for us to talk with you today. I mean, we're obviously fans of this great music and, and such admirers of your songwriting skills. And I don't think it's possible for us to ever interview a songwriter who's more successful because I don't know if there's ever been one. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just astounding. I, I feel like, you know, we've, uh, we've only brush the surface of your song catalog and i i'm embarrassed that we've even passed over uh some some hits in this conversation but you've just done too darn much to to uh, <laughs> squeeze it all in so thank you so much i uh, uh i owe it all to like i call uh the master muse hmm. is who i call god and uh, he's the one that's blessed me with this uh beautiful talent and uh long lasting talent and these beautiful songs i can't take uh uh, it would be wrong for me to really take all the credit for it because I've been blessed. Mm, yeah, just uh, just amazing. So thank you again. We, we've thank sure you. enjoyed it. Thank you, guys. 
Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Again, you can find us by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. While Songcraft is available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a member. We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. 